This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kylie Moore-Gilbert, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks so much for having me, Cheryl. It does feel like um, such a privilege to be speaking to you. I, ha- I have followed your story uh, since you were arrested, so um, it's wonderful to have you back. But I guess for you it's been bittersweet. But let's talk about that. Firstly, I'm going to introduce you. For those that don't know, Kylie is a British-Australian academic and a scholar of Middle Eastern and Islamic studies. She spent significant time travelling and researching in the region. In 2018, Kylie was arrested in Iran and and falsely convicted of espionage and sentenced to 10 years in prison. I can hardly say that. Anyway, she spent 804 days in imprisonment in brutal conditions before she was eventually released in November 2020 as part of a prisoner swap orchestrated by the Australian government. Kylie has written about this. The book is The Uncaged Sky. Kylie, I've got to tell you this. My biggest fear ever in life is to be locked up in jail. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. You know how people have those dreams? That's my dream. I get locked up mistakenly and then that's it. My life's over. Instead Mm. of sort of waking up and being naked in your your high school. Exactly. (laughs) Or flying. (laughs) Your biggest fear is is being in a prison cell. Well, I don't blame you. It's it's a pretty horrific experience. (laughs) It's got to be. And, you know, sometimes when I'm reading about people like you, I get a great unrational fear that that could be me it really is just crazy and I don't know where that comes from because I don't know anyone that's ever been to prison you know you're the first person I've ever spoke to that's been imprisoned can we first start firstly just tell me your overarching story and then we'll take it from there okay sure so um as you you know noted in your introduction Um, I'm an academic and I had planned a sort of two and a half week trip to Iran in 2018 for um, really business purposes or for academic purposes. I'd been invited to a seminar in Qom uh, by an Iranian university and it was a seminar that was on Shia Islam, which is the majority sect of Islam in Iran. And um, it was in English for foreign academics interested in this area of study. And I guess it sort of was an opportunity to get a window into a very conservative city in Iran that was a hub of Shia Islamic scholarship and, um, you know, experience some of this fascinating country. I'm not a scholar of Iran at all, but uh, my research was kind of relevant to that subject of Shia Islam. I was looking at some Shia minority communities in the the Gulf states, the the Arab Gulf states. So I thought, oh, you know, they've invited me and it sounds interesting and um, the university had some money set aside at that point for 
such, you know, conference travel. So I thought, well, may as well give it a shot. And it, but I was interested in Iran. I thought it, it sounded like a beautiful country and, you know, so rich in history and culture. And um, I thought, well, why not? I'll go there and, and be there for a few weeks and it'll be a great experience. So, and it actually was a great experience up until the moment of my arrest. I, I had a really, you know, nice time in Iran and the Iranian people are just remarkable and friendly and hospitable and lovely and my thinking up until the moment of my arrest was, this is a fantastic place. You know, I'd love to come back here at some point. Carly, did you, while you were at that conference, did you ever suspect that something didn't feel right or something that maybe you're being followed or maybe that you're being watched? Did you ever feel that way or was it a total shock? I didn't feel at the conference that somebody was watching me. There was one academic at the conference who was quite suspicious and I think whether it's related to me or not I think he had some sort of relationship with the security services in Iran of this is in retrospect mm-hmm. based on his behavior and and my talking with him knowing now what I know about Iran's security services and how they operate and everything I think he was suspicious but I don't know whether he's connected to my arrest at all because it's very likely that given there's a gathering of foreigners in this you know very paranoid regime um, that they might send someone to just monitor or keep tabs on what the foreigners were up to without any reference to my arrest. I I know I was arrested because a Bahraini man that I met in Qom um, in the course of the conference but he wasn't a participant in it he and I spoke with him, interviewed him for my my scholarship on the Shia community in Bahrain. He dobbed me into the Revolutionary Guards and must have got some benefit for doing so. I'm not sure what, but he's the reason why I became flagged as suspicious on their radar. The conference itself, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I would like to think that all of their intentions were pure, but I really don't know. Mm. So tell me about the actual arrest. Where were you? What happened? How did you feel? I was at the airport in Tehran, the capital. I was checking in. I had already checked into my flight back to Australia and um, I'd put my bags on the carousel and was going toward passport control when a group of men stopped me from the Revolutionary Guards, although I didn't realise that's who they were at the time, and told me they had a warrant for my arrest took me to an interrogation room in the airport and basically told me I wouldn't be making my flight and I had to answer all of their questions. Mm. And did you think initially it might be a mistake? Oh, definitely. That was my initial response. You guys, it's a misunderstanding. Mm. Let's sort this out. Please, you know, let me explain and then let me get on my flight. And Mm. when I clearly missed my plane, then I was thinking, okay, well, I'll explain everything and they'll put me on the next flight tomorrow or you know, this is just saber rattling or whatever. They said they've got a warrant for my arrest, but it didn't look like a warrant. They they showed me a piece of paper. It was just a an A4 printout from any computer and it was in Farsi, didn't look official at all. So I thought, oh, it's probably just bluffing. And, you know, once I explain who I am and show them that I'm innocent and they've got the wrong person, they'll let me go. I, I, I just couldn't comprehend that as an innocent person who'd done nothing wrong, that they might actually be seeking to throw me in prison. Mm-hmm. At what point did that dawn on you that this is a lot more serious than you anticipated? I think, to be honest, it should have dawned on me from the first 24 hours, but I think I was in just total denial and shock. I couldn't process emotions. I was just robotic. Like I, 
I lapped up, I guess, and believed the lies they were telling me because I was just in such a state that I couldn't comprehend the alternative. Mm -hmm. They were telling me, look, if you cooperate, we'll let you go. If you cooperate, we'll put you on a flight back to Australia at some point. And I just believed them because, I, I yeah, the mm -hmm. alternative was just too shocking for me to, to understand or to compute. Mm -hmm. So how long were you at the airport? I was at the airport um, maybe six or seven hours, I think, mm -hmm. all up. Um, mm -hmm. In the night, maybe midnight or 11 um, p.m., something like that, they took me out of the airport, put me in a blacked-out vehicle with a female guard on either side and um, drove me back into Tehran City and uh, took me to a kind of a safe house there, a, an apartment in the north of the city, and, um, and continued my interrogation there all throughout the night until maybe 10 or 11 a.m. the next day where they then took me to a hotel room that was under their control, monitored with cameras. And um, I wasn't allowed to leave that room and they allowed me to sleep at that point. So I'd been awake for a day and a half by then. Were you able to contact anyone? Did they allow you to make a phone call? They didn't allow me to make a phone call. They confiscated my phone, my computer, everything from the, the first moment of my arrest. Mm -hmm. But they did allow me to send a WhatsApp message to my family saying, telling them some bogus story, I'd already told them I'd checked into my flight. So they knew I was planning on coming home that day, but telling them, oh, I've got this new research opportunity and I've decided to stay in Iran a little bit longer and I'm not going to be back, you know, and I knew that they wouldn't believe it, but I guess at least they allowed me to give my family a heads up that something had happened in a roundabout way. Mm. And how did you feel about sending that text? Because that's kind of, for me, could be the moment that I knew, wow, this isn't going to be easy. Well, they did allow me to say that I was just extending my trip a little bit longer and then I would be home. Mm. So I guess it kind of, I bought into that, like, lie of it's going to, you know, I'm going to have to answer all their questions and show them that I'm innocent and then they'll let me go. It mm. kind of furthered that assumption. So whilst I, I knew my family wouldn't believe it and I knew the university wouldn't believe it either um, because you don't just extend your trip like that at the last minute when you've checked into your flight already and, you know, I hadn't rescheduled my flight. I just lost my ticket. You know, I actually checked in and then not showed up at the gate. So if I was really extending my trip, I would have just changed the dates of my flight and then I would have told my family what the new dates were. So I knew they wouldn't buy it. I, I actually was happy I could send that message to them though because if I had have just disappeared with zero contact and you know my ex-husband would have gone to the airport to pick me up in Melbourne and I wouldn't have turned up that would have been much more shocking and scary for them they wouldn't have had a clue what what would have happened to me at least I had the opportunity to tell them mm. I, I'm okay um something's obviously up but I'm alive and I'm I'm able to message you. So mm. um, I was glad I was able to send that message, but um, I guess it just further fueled my delusions that I would be going home soon mm. on a different flight. Do you think we need to feel deluded to get through a shock like that? I think it is a very typical human response to shock or to mm. a completely unexpected and dangerous situation thrust upon them. I think it's pretty normal to as a survival mechanism, I guess, psychologically, mm. to sort of tell yourself it's not as bad as it really is. in front. Of, what you're seeing in front of your eyes is not nearly as bad as what an objective person might term it to be. 
you know, as a means of getting through it. So I do mm. think it's a, a typical psychological response because a lot of other prisoners told me the same. You mm. know, some of them had been arrested at gunpoint inside their apartments or whatever. They also had a kind of a similar reaction where they just couldn't believe it and they thought, okay, it'll all get sorted out. You know, I'll call my uncle, I'll call my father and he'll come and, and show evidence and documents and then they'll get me out. Or I, I think the the shock of just going from it's really like entering another world or another yeah. you know reality like the difference between your life outside and, and in a prison cell is so extreme and the shock of just being transplanted there is so great that our brains have to make sense of it somehow and, and that's a common response mm-hmm. it's kind of you know it's a hope response that you've got to live in hope that it, you know if you don't have that then what have you got at what point yeah. then did you so you were in the hotel and you were able to sleep because that's another thing. I mean, you know, lack of sleep just mucks around with your head so much. I mean, I know if I don't get seven hours a night, I, then I can't function. So I yeah, can't imagine. Yeah, oh, same. Uh, like, and it's it's like you're drunk, you know, when yes. you've been sleep deprived for so long, you can't make decisions. You shouldn't be driving. You shouldn't be, you know, making life decisions because, yeah, you're just woozy and out of it. And mm. and I, I didn't sleep for, you know, I, I kind of collapsed that day when I went to the hotel after the all night interrogation. I kind of passed out for four hours or so, but it was during the daytime. So I, my mm. body wasn't used to sleeping in the daytime either. So I woke up in the afternoon and wasn't able to continue sleeping. And I was in such an anxious, nervous state that for weeks I didn't really have a proper sleep, um, mm. maybe a few hours here or there. And that certainly would have influenced my mental state as well. Mm. So at what point then did you realise that this is it? I'm going to be here for a while. I don't think I properly understood that even after they threw me in prison. Mm. You know, I was in solitary confinement, extreme solitary confinement for the first month and they were still telling me lies. And I just, I remember being utterly shocked and just in a way also unbelieving when Mm. my friend Nilu Fabayani, one of the women I established an illicit communication network with a few weeks after my initial um, incarceration, she told me about a month or six weeks into my incarceration that she had already been there for nine months. And I remember being like, how is that possible? I'm going to get out next week. I mean, I, I can't survive nine months in here. This is a temporary thing. Like my brain just wouldn't, you know, mm. couldn't understand that that this would be a long-term potentially habitation or in, in or, of a cell in such you know, deprivation. I I just, I thought I'll die. I can't survive nine months in here. Mm. So I I was still kind of in shock and and expecting it to end sometime soon, even after they threw me in prison. Mm. I just couldn't contemplate the alternative. Now, this is uh, a very strange comparison, but I'm going to make it. I am, I've been boxing. I started uh, just before the lockdown and it's helped me get through lockdown. But anyway, my trainer, she keeps saying to me, you know, so if somebody hits you in the head, this is what you've got to do. And if somebody kicks you in the, and I say to her time and time again, I will never retaliate. I'm just not that kind of person. <laughs> I say to her, Rhonda, if somebody's going to hit me, I'm going to curl up in a heap and probably die. That's just mm-hmm. who I am. And it mm-hmm. made me think about you when I was reading your book, like, because I think that I've got nothing in there. Like there's nothing that's going to make me get through a month of solitary confinement. So what do you draw on? Like when you think that you can't and you're not going to make it and you think that I can't do this, how is it that you do do it? 
I think all of us are stronger than we realize. And it's only when we're really put to the test and we literally have no choice that we discover that inner strength. I'm sure even you, even with your fear of, of prison and your, I guess, like what you just described, you, you, you're a bit more pacifist or whatever. I mean, I know if somebody punched me, I'd probably punch them back. <laughs> and I mean, like that's, that's even before I went to Iran. <laughs> Okay, well, that's good. Person, but, but I know, like, if, yeah. I'm, if my life's in danger or something, someone wants to beat me up in the street, I probably would fight back. I mean, I, <laughs> but yeah. I think, you know, there are plenty of others that I met in prison who were, you know, mm-hmm. like what you describe, more gentle souls. And you do just find this inner strength in you that, you, you know, we do have this reserve of strength that we don't need, normally need to draw upon. So we don't really, we're not really aware that it exists. But when it's a life or death situation, and in a way, it wasn't life or death, literally for me, but I didn't realize that at the time. So it could of have course. been. Of course. Yeah, um, it could have been. You know, you, you step up. Yeah. You do. Find that strength. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So you're in solitary confinement, which again, I mean, I thought being locked up for COVID was solitary confinement in my beautiful apartment, walking my lovely dog and seeing people. Mm. So, you know, it's a different reality to yours. But I want to know how it is. So firstly, describe what was a day like? What was a normal day like? And then secondly, what was going on to get you through the day? So an ordinary day would start with I think at around 8 a.m the guard opening the door of the cell and throwing in the breakfast and then slamming the door shut again and the breakfast would be a, a square of white lavosh bread and a piece of white cheese and I didn't eat that breakfast almost ever because um, I have IBS and it triggered everything and but in in those initial weeks I didn't almost eat anything ever because I just had a constant um feeling of nausea and and anxiety and I couldn't keep it down. I didn't have a toilet in my cell either. So I couldn't take myself off to the toilet whenever I needed to. My cell was literally two and a half by two and a half meters, a little box without a window with the lights on 24 seven, no furniture, no toilet, absolutely nothing to do. Just a couple of scratchy old military blankets that I, you know, would lay out on the floor and sleep on and, and cover myself with no pillow, nothing, no sheets. And the days that I didn't have interrogation, I was locked in that box for 23 hours a day. 
uh, I would be let out once in the morning for half an hour and then another half an hour in the evening to a kind of a narrow balcony uh, attached to the women's unit because we were on the first floor, so we were elevated above the ground. And on that balcony, it was maybe 10 metres long and two metres wide, and we'd be able to pace, I would be able to pace backwards and forwards for half an hour, breathing the fresh air and then be taken back into that cell again. So that was my day, you know, in the midday they would come in with more food. It would normally be kind of a greasy rice dish with some stew and uh, dinner would be some smaller serving of something like a deep fried. I, I very rarely ate it, you know, something deep fried or whatever, some piece of often they started off giving us meat and then they started, um, I think, cutting the budget and we got less and less meat and more and more kind of tofu or um, that fake meat. You know, that instead of mince, it would be soy because mm, that's mm. flavoured like mince because meat was too expensive. Mm. So we, we got these kinds of unidentifiable maybe meat, maybe fake meat, soy dishes for dinner. Uh, I didn't really know what most of them were because they were all Iranian, obviously. And Iranian food's very good. Mm. And even some of the prison food wasn't too bad, but um, obviously the, the – the quality um, in Iran in prison is is very low and, yeah, I didn't eat very much of it. I lost a lot of weight in those first few weeks. So, yeah, that would be my day. I'd have to spend hours uh, each day just twiddling my thumbs in this little box trying to, to find something to do to occupy my mind and not, not going entirely crazy or insane from, you know, the, the isolation and the deprivation. And also I was very anxious and worried and um, upset so that, you know, my mood wasn't great. Mm. Um, other days I would have that same routine, but I would be taken to interrogation, sometimes for a very long time, morning and afternoon, others for like two, three hours. And, you know, I would have to sit in an interrogation room and be asked all sorts of insane questions about my so-called espionage activities or whatever. Uh, at times I was blindfolded and had to sit facing the wall and had all these men standing behind me yelling stuff at me and intimidating me. Um, I guess that was the bad cop mode. And then at other times I was allowed to face the interrogator and take my blindfold off and speak to him like a human being. So yeah, there were all sorts of tactics they used in those, but I actually preferred going to interrogation rather than be stuck in my cell um, in solitary confinement 23 hours a day doing nothing because you really go insane in there and mm. the human brain's not built to, mm. you know, have zero stimulation. And they know that and that's why they do it to you. They want to break you and mm. it's designed to break you for interrogation. Mm. It's psychological torture. So I actually preferred going to interrogation even though they were, you know, not very nice to me and you know it was a bit scary I preferred that because at least I had some human contact than just being alone inside my own head all day. What about bathing were you in the clothes that you were arrested in? No they took those clothes from me and made me wear a prison uniform oh, wow. and um, at the beginning they only gave me one set so I only had one pair of undies and, and one sort of terrible uh, polyester t-shirt and um, then I had to wear a pink pink pants and a pink manteau, which is a kind of a long jacket that came down to my knees, Islamic style, and then a hijab. But, you know, if I washed those, I didn't have anything else to wear. So, you know, this was a struggle for me to get my hands on a second pair so that I could wash the first pair and wear the second. Mm. Um, and bathing was initially only once every three days, which was another source of great mm. frustration for me and 
I guess I was very upset about that because often it was hot when I was arrested and there was no air in my cell. So I was sweating a lot and I wanted to wash myself. And we were taken to a, um, a shower block, I guess, attached to the women's unit, given only 10 minutes. We would have to wash our clothes in that time, hang them on a rack, wash ourselves. We didn't have conditioner or proper shampoo. It was more like hand soap as shampoo. Like initially, actually, I was given a block of soap, like of laundry soap, actually green laundry soap, and told I had to wash my hair with that. I have very long hair and it was a disaster (laughs) because, you know, my hair was just a bird's nest by the end of it and it was, you know, all in a big tangle. Um, But, yeah, I had to do that once every three days until like that, that being able to shower only every three days and not being given toilet paper initially was for me because they had these horrible squatter toilets that weren't clean and, you know, I'd have to call the guard and get escorted to that toilet. It wasn't inside my cell and they wouldn't give me toilet paper. And for me, I had so many meltdowns and altercations with the guards over the toilet paper issue and not being able to shower every day that in the end they had to cave and after a few weeks I think they didn't give me that much toilet paper, but they'd give me a little bit. They'd ration the toilet paper, but at least I get some. Mm. And um, the showering after a while, I was allowed each day to shower because I just made such a big deal about it and caused so much, you know, chaos over it that they relented. And and you were that kind of prisoner, weren't you? You weren't going to take it quietly. And again, I can't help but try and parallel what would I do? I mean, you know, I think I would have died at day five. But anyway... I think about your courage and your tactics and I don't know, I read this book, it was about the survival of humans in adverse situations. It was talking mainly about a group, right, that the survival of a group relies very, very heavily on one person taking charge. So say, for instance, you've got five people on a life raft and I think that was the example that was given. If everybody just goes with it and a leader doesn't emerge, it's more likely that those people will perish, right? But if Mm. one person takes leadership, it's more likely that more people will survive. Now, you did that, didn't you? You took leadership of your own predicament. I guess. I mean, uh, as a solo person, Mm. I mean, I don't know if I could consider myself a leader when I was the only one there but I guess I tried to take charge of it Mm. not initially though initially I was confused scared I didn't know the parameters of the situation that I was in I didn't know the rules of the prison I didn't know what they were capable of doing to me I was really scared that sexually assault me or you know that bad things would happen to me, torture, like physical torture, Mm. pull out my fingernails or something. You know, I didn't understand and I was very scared. Mm. Once I got in touch with other prisoners illicitly through that little network we set up and I started to understand in English because they told me the, the lay of the land in English, what was possible and what wasn't possible in this place and how they would, the guards would behave. I guess I became a bit stronger and more confident in my ability to push those boundaries. But it was also just anger. I mean, I when you take everything away from someone, they have nothing to lose. And that's quite dangerous. You know, someone who has nothing to lose will just do anything because they don't care anymore. And after a few months, I just stopped caring about my own welfare. I, I, I often, as you said, you think you just die. I mean, I thought, well, if I just die, it'll be fine. You know, I didn't mm. even care mm. about my own life so much. And 
I wasn't, they used to threaten me with the death penalty. And I was just like, I don't give a damn. Give me the death penalty. Do whatever you want. Like, mm. <laughs> I don't care. I'm no use to you dead anyway. So you're not going to give it to me. But even if you do, whatever, I'm not, I'm not afraid of you anymore because I just stopped caring. And so I, I think it was more apathy than anything else. Yeah. Like, and anger. I was angry as an innocent person to be treated like an animal, to be dehumanized to the extent that they would call me by a number rather than my name. And just to live in such deprived situation for, for no, no fault of my own. I mean, I had done nothing wrong mm. and I, I was just super angry at my treatment and, and that anger, I guess, manifest in, in resistance. Mm. Mm. So all in all, it was what, three years? It was a, it was two years and three months. Two years and three months. So how much of that was in solitary confinement? All up, it was 12 months in solitary. Oh, gosh. And then when you weren't in solitary, where were you? Uh, most of the time that I wasn't in solitary, I was in a similar cell with one roommate or two roommates, mm. a cellmate. Mm. Um, which was very challenging in and of itself because you had to share such a tiny space with another person, someone you didn't know, someone you might not necessarily be friendly with. I had a few very hostile cellmates who'd actually been tasked with spying on me. So well, you're they on your own friend. with nothing. <laughs> yes, exactly. That that was worse than being on my own. Like yeah. I actually went on hunger strike to get one of them out of my cell at one wow. point yeah. um, because she was so horrible. After that first month, I was moved to a cell with a squatter toilet inside. And so you have to use the toilet in front of one another, shower together, like this kind of thing. It's quite confronting. Oh. Um, the, the hygiene situation in the cell was often challenging because of that. Uh, so, it, you know, at times having a cellmate wasn't great, but at other times it was. I mean, it, once, you know, it, if I was friends with my cellmates, then we were a great support to one another and the solidarity between us gave us all strength and a reason to get up in the morning. So overall, you know, I had some wonderful cellmates too and some became my, my sisters and my close friends. Mm. The two that I dedicated the book to, Nilufar and Sapide, I mean, they are my, my sisters and mm. we spent nine months in a cell together and, you know, I was happy at, at certain junctures in that nine months because they had friends around me and, and people I trusted. So, yeah, like often I was in a cell with others. Uh, I was also three months in a public prison called Qachak, uh, in the desert south of Tehran. And um, that was a prison full of criminals and, and regular Iranian people, not security prisoners or political prisoners. And that was, you know, a very interesting experience in and of itself. Were there times when you felt in danger from other prisoners? Were you worried about your life? Yes. Um, not in danger for my life per se, but certainly there were other prisoners who were dangerous and whom I didn't trust. Mm. I mean, dangerous for a variety of reasons. I mean, that, that informer that I mentioned that I had to go on hunger strike to get out of my cell, she was very dangerous. And she actually, some of her testimony appeared in the court documents, not only of myself, but of others as well. Some of her, you know, she would, I guess, make statements and those statements about you would go into the evidence against you in court. So she was a horrible, horrible person also lying a lot and, you know, not untrustworthy. So she was very dangerous in that sense. But also when I was in Karchak in this criminal prison, there were a lot of dangerous prisoners. There were gangs there. There were people with weapons and drugs and all sorts of things. And people who were also informers, 
who would, you know, sell you out to get some benefit to themselves. It was a, you know, a, a society in there and there was a hierarchy and people got beat up by other prisoners. There were vendettas by a group, you know, or a gang against someone else. And, you know, you had to be careful not to get on the wrong side of certain people. And um, it was a bit, you know, of a jungle, law of the jungle in there. And, um, yeah, that could be dangerous too. So you were sentenced to 10 years. I mean, it's unfathomable, I think, for me to understand how you would have felt at that time. But then you you served, as you said, just over two years of that sentence. At what point did you think it was coming to an end or was the end a total surprise? The end wasn't a surprise. The, The fact that it would come to an end wasn't a surprise necessarily, although it was certainly not taken as a given um, and I didn't really trust that it was actually happening until the very last minute that it, I was put on the plane and flown out of Tehran. Oh but um, yeah. I knew the government had entered into meaningful negotiations with the Revolutionary Guards from maybe the 10-month mark before my release. So from the end of 2019, mm-hmm. beginning of 2020, I was hearing whispers from various friendly prison guards Um, about the negotiations. I could see that uh, there'd been a significant strategy shift on the behalf of the interrogators. They were treating me differently. There was much more sensitivity and care given to my medical um, treatment as well. And they would tell me stuff about the negotiations. I mean, they're not a professional organisation at all. I mean, it's all personality politics and various revolutionary guards I was friendly with would tell me, uh, give me updates on the negotiations and on their position in the negotiations. So I was aware they were happening, but several deals had fallen through to get me freed before the one that actually succeeded happened. So even when I heard there was a deal in the works, I I didn't properly allow myself to believe or trust that it would be executed because I knew that others had fallen through in the past. Mm. Okay, so you're on that flight. What is it that you're thinking? I think I was quite in shock at the events of that day when I was on the flight, but I just sort of held back a little bit until I received word that we'd passed out of Iranian airspace Mm. because I just couldn't trust that, Mm. you know, they wouldn't turn the plane around in in midair and and force me to land or, Mm. you know, they were that sketchy and they liked playing games and, you know, I just didn't trust that I was free until I'd left Iran completely And so I just remember looking out the window of the plane at the beautiful Persian Gulf so far below me and hearing that we'd passed out of Iranian airspace and just breathing a colossal sigh of relief and telling myself, this is the beginning of the next chapter of your life. Mm -hmm. And then that plane touched down in Melbourne? Yes, the plane, um, it was about a two-day trip to get back to, we didn't go to Melbourne, we went to Canberra. And it was about a two-day trip to get there, we sort of, jumped between, we, we spent, um, we first flew to Doha in Qatar and stayed overnight there in the airport hotel. And then we got on a, uh, an Australian plane and flew, I think we stopped in an Australian overseas territory in the Indian Ocean, refueled there and then went to Exmouth in WA, refueled there and then on to Canberra. So 
by the time we we got to Canberra, it was a good two days that had passed. And actually, I didn't sleep the whole time. I, I didn't sleep for three days um, straight upon my release. So I was, you know, in a very weird place <laughs> in terms imagine. of my headspace. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, we landed in Canberra. And unfortunately, I had to go straight into hotel quarantine. So I didn't have that sort of amazing longed for reunion with my family and friends immediately on the tarmac in Canberra or anything like that. Mm. And at what point did you see your family? I saw my mother at the in the hotel quarantine because she'd volunteered to go in with me. Mm. But um, the rest of the members of my family I saw in drips and drabs, you know, maybe six weeks, two to six weeks following my arrival. Oh, man. I mean, what a journey. So how are you now, Kylie? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, you know, I have good days and bad days. Mm. It's not always easy, but... All things considered, I think I'm doing well and I'm just trying to be positive and optimistic and, you know, looking to the future and, you know, hoping to find the silver lining in everything that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Well, you're brave and you're strong and honestly, remarkable. It's a remarkable story and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. The memoir is called The Uncaged Sky. Thanks so much for having me on, Cheryl. It's been a really great pleasure to talk to you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.